tonight. Let's get to the teaching of God's Word. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. Um, if you're new with us, this is what we do here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, we took a four-week break between Acts and the book of Malachi uh, to teach on, actually, the Bible itself, uh, the authority, the Word of God. Uh, and, and, and so we find ourselves back and beginning a study in the book of Malachi. Uh, Old Testament book, and so probably what I'd encourage you to do if you're not real familiar with where Malachi is, go to Matthew, right, the first gospel, and then just go back a few pages, and you'll find uh, Malachi. Probably not a book many of you have studied or looked at. Probably if you know Malachi, the book of Malachi, uh, you know two things about it. One, I just told you, it's the last book of our Old Testament. Uh, And then the second thing, if you know a little bit more of Malachi, is you know that it talks about money. Okay, in Malachi chapter 3, you've probably heard Malachi quoted a lot um, in some offering type sermons and things like that. And yes, Malachi is the last book of our Old Testament. And yes, it does talk about money, but that is not the heart of the book of Malachi. So anytime we begin a study or a book study like this, like um, uh, myself, our elders, we're really full of just anticipation of what God is going to do. In each book we've studied here at the Parks Church over the last... 10 plus years, God always does something unique, right? And and he's faithful to do that, not because of our teaching um, specifically or our our eloquence or our explanation. He's faithful to do that because this is his word, because Malachi is written by God, right? That's what we talked about over the last four weeks, that this is literally the word of God to his people, to us as the church for today. And I'm really excited uh, about this book, uh, this prophet. It's a very short book. So we went through Acts, right? 50 some odd weeks, took us a long time. We're probably going to go through Malachi in about six to eight weeks. So it's going to be a really quick book. It's only 55 verses total. I think we had one section in Acts where we covered 55 in one sermon, okay? And so 55 verses. If you just sat down, and I encourage you to do that, even as we go through this series, and you just read it, Beginning to end, it'll take about 12 to 15 minutes to read the entire book of Malachi. And so you should definitely uh, do that. Um, Malachi is, um, in what I've been praying as, as, as I prepare for this, it's back to Acts a little bit. Sorry, I just can't get out of Acts. Um, is what happens in Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Where Peter and the apostles, they, 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 they preach, they proclaim the gospel, they share. And it says in, in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, that the people were cut to the heart. Um, I'm praying that for us. I'm praying that for, for me as we walk through God's word, this Old Testament uh, prophet, that, that the spirit of God would, would, would cut us to um, the heart. And because that's where the real work is done. It's where the real work is done. And um, Malachi is a heavy book. It's a prophet. If you've read any prophets in, 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 in your Bible, you know that they're, they're not like, hey, here's some you know, small things. It's like, no, here, repent or destruction. <laughs> like, that's it. The last word in Malachi, you can check me on this. The last word at the end of chapter four, last word is destruction. And so it's heavy. It's a lot. It's, it's, it's weighty. God is confronting things. He's, he's, he's correcting. He's challenging the people of Israel who are, who are straying from him. And so the theme, if I could give it um, to Malachi, would be this, is that it's God's warning to the religious community of a dangerous slide into spiritual apathy. That's the theme over Malachi. God's gracious, God's good warning of a dangerous slide 
into spiritual apathy. You see, the Lord understands the pervasive tendency in his people towards spiritually empty religion. And I think if you're honest and evaluating your own heart and thinking about your own relationship with God, you can identify moments, maybe even where you currently are, of being spiritually stagnant, apathetic, cold, dry, wondering, God, are, are you even there? God, what, what are you doing? I know you're there, but are you really here? Are, are, are you really among us? And that's why the prayer has been, Holy Spirit, cut us to the heart. Cut deep. You see, a, a shallow surface little skimming will not accomplish the waking up that we need, that the people of God needed in the time of Malachi. And so these first five verses, we're only going to go through five verses this morning, will be the foundation for the other 50. They'll be the foundation for the other 50. So before we get into those five verses, uh, I want to just set up the book a little bit, as I do always when we start a new uh, book. Uh, the author, pretty clear, right? Malachi. Or is it clear? Wait a minute here. Wait a minute. So the word Malachi, the name Malachi, means my messenger or my angel. And um, we know nothing about Malachi. Typically in the other prophets, they give their father's name uh, so that you can trace them back. They give uh, other things about where they're from. We know nothing about Malachi. He's not mentioned again um, in, in, in any historical form or fashion. So some scholars believe that, that this is more of like a, a pseudonym, right? This is, this is kind of a, a, a name that they put out front because the writing of Malachi is so strong. It's so weighty that they put this kind of generic name out there like Malachi. Like this is my messenger from God. This is, this is my angel delivering what it'll say in verse 1, the oracle of God, right? This burden from God. Some believe that Malachi was the name that, that potentially the prophet Ezra took, right? And all those, those things are just interesting, but we know that the author ultimately, whether it was Malachi, the prophet specifically, who was a man or another man like Ezra or someone else, ultimately Malachi was written by who? God. We're going to see that in, in verse 1. And the audience to which Malachi, and I'm going to refer to it as Malachi writing it, um, Malachi wrote was Israel was the people of God. And this is important because throughout the book, the people of God have just returned a hundred years prior from exile. Okay, so they're coming out of exile into, back into Jerusalem. You remember last week we talked about, we, uh, taught, I taught from Nehemiah and the walls have been rebuilt, the temple have, have been rebuilt. And so now we've been a hundred years out of exile and the people of God, um, they really thought that now coming out of exile... That surely the Messiah comes, surely coming back into Jerusalem with the walls being rebuilt, with the temple being uh, rebuilt and reformed. Um, surely the Messiah is going to come. Surely he's going to restore all these things. The things that we were facing, uh, the, the, the economic poverty and all these other things. Surely the things that we were facing, that we faced in exile, he's returned us back to our homeland. Surely it's going to turn around for us. But they're not seeing that. And over these hundred years, what you see is the people of God become more and more full of apathy, 
more and more full of themselves and less and less full of the Spirit of God. And listen, this is a hundred years is a relatively short amount of time. It's not a, a super long time where God delivered them from exile. And what follows Malachi, many of you know, right, if you just flip the page after chapter four, some of your pages even have a blank page in it to represent 400 years of silence. That after speaking to the prophet Malachi and pinning these down, the people of God, Israel, seeing them, God goes silent for 400 years before bursting forth on the scene, announcing that the Savior of the world has come, Jesus Christ. This is a very interesting book. It's a very timely book for us as a people. And so let me begin reading in verse 1 as we just walk through these, these five verses. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. There are two important words in this one verse. The word oracle and the word hand. Look at your Bible again. Yes. The word oracle and the word hand. You say, Kyle, I see one of those. I don't see the other. Well, if you laid this out, the Bible is not written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek primarily. The Hebrew word here at the end of this was to Israel by the hand of Malachi. And to the original audience, when they saw that phrase, that idiom, right? By the hand of Malachi, they knew to pay attention. That this, by the hand of Malachi, was a phrase that said, this is divine. This is the word from the Lord. Pinned by a prophet. Who is a prophet? A prophet was a man who sat between God and the people, communicated the word of God to the people of God. And so they would have saw that word hand and going, okay, pay attention. And the type of message that this is, is an oracle. Now, some of your translations, look at it. Maybe that uses the word burden. This is a burden. This is heavy, right? This, this message that Malachi was delivering from God was a heavy message, an important message, a weighty message to the people of God. And this is what, like I said already, this is the message that prophets delivered, right? It wasn't a message of, of health, wealth, and prosperity. It wasn't messages of 10 easy steps to be the best you can be. Literally, the message from the prophets are this. Listen, turn to God or be destroyed. And there's a rhythm that this book follows. And I'll lay that rhythm out for you, for us to study over the six weeks. And it's actually a method of teaching that's employed here. And so the rhythm is this that you'll see, and you'll see these in this five verses as well, is that there's a declaration in every section we'll go through. There's a declaration by God. There is an objection made by the people of God, Israel. And then there's an explanation by God. Not that God owes anybody an explanation, but God graciously gives an explanation. Okay? So a declaration by God, an objection by Israel. Right? This flow of, uh, of, of the book and this method is important because it shows us something about God and how he teaches. And there's actually a name for this, the Socratic dialectic method. This is the one being employed here. Where the teaching, it brings answers not from the mouth of the teacher to the ears of the students, but rather from the heart of the student into his mind. Do you hear that? This is what these questions are, are, are meant to raise up from the people of God and thus from us answers from within our hearts to our minds. For us to go, wait, I do, I do have that objection oftentimes about God. 
Wait, God raises this question about me or about my heart. How do I answer it? Right? He's not going, hey, just do this. Hey, be better. Why don't you stop doing this? He's going to go, no, how about this question? And the answer to that question is going to reveal really where your heart is. That's the method being employed here. A declaration by God, an objection by Israel, and then an explanation. Jesus himself in the New Testament employs this method all over the place, doesn't he, in his teachings? Think about it, where he will ask the disciples questions. He'll ask people around him, the religious leaders, right? Hey, what should we do here? Jesus could have given them a straight-up answer to go, listen, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. But what does Jesus employ? He goes, listen, whose image is on this coin? Who's the man that does this or that? Or when he is with the woman caught in adultery, he could have said, all of you sinners need to back away. He could have said that. I mean, he's, he's God. He's Jesus, right? But what does he say to them? He goes, you who are without sin, be the first one to cast a stone. That's a teaching method. And what did everybody have to do? Nobody was going, all right, without sin, that's me. He's the only one who could have cast that stone. And what happens? The Bible tells us that everybody dropped their stones and walked away. He was saying something. This is the way Malachi will teach as well. He will teach the people of God, and he will teach us lovingly. And so let's look. Verse 2. The first words from the prophet Malachi in a heavy book, in a weighty book, full of correction and reproof and discipline, waking us up. What does he start with? I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Before God ever gets to correction, he starts with connecting with you and with me and the people of God. Connecting us, not to his laws, not to his commands, but to what? His heart. Who he is. He, he, has, he has pages of things that they have done against him. Very similar to what he has against you and me. Stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks. But what does he do first? He goes, I love you. It's like he's employing that parenting technique, right? The, the connection before correction. Right? Why? Because he's the perfect parent for his children. I want you to know this first. Before I get into those things, I've loved you. I love you. I'll be honest with you. I, I told the elders even this before service. Um, one of the most difficult things for me to speak on is the love of God. Um, probably for a variety of reasons, but, but one of the primary reasons is the most difficult thing for me to speak on is because how insufficient I feel about the words that I have to use to describe it. I, I've talked on it a lot of times. And at the end of every one, I go, God, I feel like I've, it's fallen short. I feel like that fell short. And it does. My words today will fall short of the magnitude and the size of love that God has for you. For me, for his children. You ever have those moments where it's hard to describe 
Oftentimes for us as believers, it's tied to some, a moment we have with the Lord. And people are like, tell me that moment. And you're like, ah. He was just there. His love. He loves you. And that is the foundation. That's why I said these five verses will set up the rest of every sermon. Every correction, every discipline. It's his overwhelming love. And we'll keep coming back to it. Because listen, correction and discipline are part of God's love. It's not like you have two buckets, right? You have God's love over here, and then you have his discipline and correction over here. They're one and the same. That's what Hebrews 11, excuse me, Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6 and verse 11 talk about. That it's, it's, it's those whom God loves that he disciplines. And listen, even the discipline of God is not always correction. It's his kindness that he brings us along in his ways. Last sermon series we talked about, Psalm 16, verses 6 and 7. Lord, your lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. What is the basis of that? It's because his pleasant places, the lines have fallen in those pleasant places for us. Why? Because he loves us. Because he cares for us unconditionally. You see, God wants us to know his heart toward us, his heart toward us. And then from that, begin to work on our hearts toward him. Did you get that? He first, he's leading the dance here. He's going, I I love you. See, in the Old Testament, time and time again, relationship always preceded requirement. Um, One author, he writes, uh, C.J. Wright, He says that God did not send Moses down to Egypt with the law already tucked under his cloak. Right? I was like, I love you. I love you. By the way, here's all. It was, I love you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to call you as my people. I'm going to bring you out from Egypt. And I'm going to show you my love now in giving you laws and commands. But what preceded that? Relationship. Salvation. Deliverance. But... See that but in verse 2? But God, knowing our hearts, knowing the questions of our hearts, just as it was with the people of Israel, he knows his people here in Israel. They're going, God, but how have you loved us? God, because it feels like lip service. It feels like empty words on a page. How have you loved us? And here it goes back to a little bit of an authority issue. Does it not? How many of you ever, let's be honest, question God? Said this to God. Prove it, God. How have you loved us? Because we're delivered now, 100 years out of exile. Surely we thought the Messiah would come by now. Surely we thought that you'd set up new rule and reign. Surely we thought that we'd be prosperous. Surely we thought all of these things. We're your people. But yet, we're in poverty. We're in pain. We're struggling a lot. Where is your love in this? How have you loved us? You ever been there? God, I'm suffering I'm still dealing with depression. I'm still dealing with anxiety. God, I, I've been praying for, for this person. Maybe it's, it's a child. It's, 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 a, it's whatever it may be. God, for their salvation to come. God, where, where, where's your love in that? Where's your love in this struggle? Where's your love in, in, in this culture and in this society that's being ripped apart? Where are you, God? How have you loved us? And then God gives his explanation. In the rest of these verses. 
He doesn't have to, but he does. And so that's what I want to unpack for us briefly this morning. Um, How do we know God loves us? How does Israel know that God loved them? They're going, God, where where are you? How do we know? First thing is this. Back to the beginning of verse 2. Why do we know God loves us? How does God love us? We know because he says he loves us. Beginning of verse 2. I have loved you. It is, it's something uh, called the perfect tense. Okay? Meaning it's not like, his, like I've lo- I have loved you, like past tense. It's perfect. Meaning that it, it signifies a completed action with a continued ramification. Okay? Track with me. That's God's love. A past action with a continued ramification of that love. How many of you, those of you who are parents, have ever said to your kids when they said, why do we need to do X? Because I said so. You can be honest. Like, there's no judgment in here. Before I became a parent, I was like, I'll never say that. I'll never say because I said so, right? That's lazy parenting. Oh. And then I had a child, one of three, and I say it quite often now. Right? Why don't you do this? Because I said so. And it actually is the best answer, right? Like it fits. How many parents are like, yeah, it just actually fits that moment, right? Because I said so. Listen, the God of the universe, right? For parenting, yeah, it may be lazy, it may be whatever. But, but the God of the universe, when he says something, it's true in the most perfect sense. So when he says, I, Israel, I love you, they can be sure of it. Why? Because he said so. Because his word is truth. Everything he speaks is true. So child of God, son or daughter, when God says, I love you, you can take it to the bank like you can take anything to the bank, right? That God says, it is a promise. I love you. How do we know? Because he says it. Need further proof? He continues to give it. And this is where we get into, um, if I'm honest, some very sticky verses. And this is (laughs) when you preach through books of the Bible, you just get hit with these. Typically, they're not three verses in, but... Um, I see why people don't do this way of teaching. Um, let's go. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Remember, we're in the explanation of God. How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord. Yet I loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. See, these are the sermons that Sam is supposed to preach. Um, How do you know God loves us? One, because he says it. Two, verses 2b and three, because he chose us when we didn't deserve it. Um, Now track with me and be very careful with my words here. It seemed to them, to Israel, that God had not kept his promises to restore the tribes and the land back to them. And the short-sightedness of the people incited God in this explanation to give a history lesson. And so Malachi, the last book of our Old Testament, actually kicks it all the way back to the beginning, your first book, Genesis. And gives them account of God esteeming Jacob above Esau. You see, the words love and hate for us in our English vernacular carry with them an emotional type sense. When you see them here in this verse, we need to think about them 
um, understood based upon a covenantal sense. Okay, now, now track with me. Meaning that when God says he loves one and hates another, it is not in the same way in which we would say, I love you and I hate you. This is a way of God saying, I chose Jacob and I did not choose Esau. You see, God chose Jacob to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He loved him, he could say. Since God did not choose Esau, the word here is he hated him. God went against the standard of rules regarding the priority of the firstborn son by electing or choosing Jacob. Jacob was the younger of the twin Esau and Jacob. If you know your Bible, the the readers would have known their Bible. Jacob was the one that God chose, not based upon anything he did. Solely at God's prerogative, he chose Jacob, not Esau. Paul actually talks about this in Romans 9, and I believe we have that back here. So this is Paul explaining, and if you want to know more about election or God's choosing, Romans 9 is a good place. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, Isaac, our forefather, though they, they were not yet born. So when did God choose? Before they were born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election or choosing might continue, not because of the works, but because of him who calls, that's God, she was told the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. God's election then, or God's choosing, then is not influenced by human interaction or cooperation. He chose Abraham out of all the people of the world, going back even further than Jacob and Esau. And he chose Jacob over Esau. Not based on their merit, not based on their performance, not based on their birth order, but as as his sovereign prerogative and his, his, his infinite knowledge alone. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8 says this. It was not because you were more in number. Why did God choose Israel? It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on. And you, and you chose. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Here we go again. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. How and why does God choose? I don't know. But he does. God does not grade on a curve. If he did, Esau probably would have passed and Jacob probably would have failed. Jacob's name itself, before it's changed to Israel, Means what? Deceiver. Esau was due in just mere birth order. The choosing. And in fact, on paper, Esau makes more sense to establish a nation with. And yet God does not bestow his grace on those who seem to deserve it. If one's righteousness were the condition for God's grace, no one would ever enter the kingdom of God. All would experience separation from him in a place called hell. But that's what's so incredible about grace. The point is not that God loved Jacob more than Esau, but that he desired to make a covenant with Jacob instead of Esau. And consequently, the reason why, hear me, election or choosing is referred to in Malachi 1 right here at the top is not to create 
a sense of exclusion. Instead, God's choosing or election is deployed here by the prophet to bring comfort and reassurance to God's people. I love you. God, how do we know you love us? Because I chose you. I chose you before you were deserving. In fact, you never deserve my love. But I still chose you. I still picked you. I still redeemed you. And so God's electing love is not based on performance or position or power. It's based on him. His sovereign will. His sovereign knowledge. His infinite knowledge and wisdom. And I know for some of you, this is causing you to squirm a little bit in those new seats, breaking them in a little bit more. But there is a spectrum here, right? And oftentimes we'll hear this idea of free will versus predestination. Free will versus God's sovereignty in, 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 in salvation. But I think what we all agree on is that God is sovereign in who he saves. True? Right? You could say that we are free will predestinarians, okay? Right? To... to, to put our little rubber band around both things because I believe the Bible teaches that. But are there certain things that we must biblically come to an agreement on? Wherever you fall on that, wherever you, 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 what I just explained to you. And the answer to that is yes. I'm not here to convince you one way or the other. I do believe the Bible points to one way. We teach from one prerogative of that. But I do think that these things are necessary for us to agree on biblically. And just to be faithful in teaching, I want to put those up there for us. That if anyone has a relationship with God, it is because God was the initiator. Right? Like, we don't initiate our own salvation. Right? The Bible, because of sin, says what? We are dead in our sin. The only thing that gives life to death is life. We're dead in our sin. Okay? And so God initiates. Even if you listen to how you pray for salvation, you're asking God to quicken the heart of another person. Right? God to initiate salvation. Second, we should not be shocked that God allows rebellious people to go to hell. But that he, here's what we should be shocked with, that he permits rebellious people to go to heaven. That's what we should be surprised by. Israel, this rebellious people, Jacob, right? Not innocent. God didn't choose him to go, man, you're a really moral dude. No, deceiver. That God's sovereignty never negates our responsibility. That is a key argument, right? And some of you, even in your angst a little bit with it, it's like, well, are we just robots? Are we just, you know, we're just kind of playing in the game here, just kind of puppets? God's sovereignty... And God's choosing does not negate our responsibility. The Bible lays that out, that there's a responsibility for us to what? Repent and confess that we need Christ. That there's a part that we play, but that initiation, that desire is started by God. Right? Apart from having that, apart from God placing that desire in you, you don't have that desire. I don't have that desire in me. Fourth, God's love for you is not contingent upon your performance for him. Praise be to God, right? And the most surprising part of election or God's choosing is that God would choose any of us in the first place. That God would choose any of us in the first place is shocking. That is grace. That's God's grace. God, why would you pick such a rebellious people? Why, Why would you call Kyle a son? Because I love you. Because I want you to experience my grace and my mercy. I'm glad we could start this series in the shallow end, everyone. (laughs) 
We can remove a few more seats for next week, probably. Um, <laughs> God, how do we know that you've loved us? Um, because I said, I love you. Because I chose you when you didn't deserve it. Listen, child of God, God chose you when you didn't deserve it. Third, how do we know God loves us? Because he rebuilds us after we failed him. Look at what he talks about now, what flows out of Jacob and Esau, two nations, um, Edom and Israel. He says this, he says, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritages to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Verse five, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. You see, the testimony of Israel is this. That in their disobedience, in their walking away, in their apathy, in their, in their disobeying his commandments and his law, they run away. But God brings them back in. He rebuilds them up. Why? Because he's chosen them and he loves them. This is the heart of our God. Even in our failure, he rebuilds us. For Edom, that was not true. But for the people of God, this is true. You know that I love you, God says, because I will rebuild you. I didn't abandon you in exile. I was working things out of you in exile. And I'll bring you back here with rebuilt walls and a rebuilt temple. I've never left you. Child of God, son or daughter, God wants to rebuild you. You say, my life's a mess It's a wreck. Ruins? You talk about Jerusalem with ruins. You should see my life. Listen, son, our daughter, our God wants to rebuild you. By his grace and in his love. You see, for us as Christians, we sit on the other side of the 400 years of silence, don't we? We sit holding in our laps and in our hands the New Testament. The story of God's ultimate love for us. His name is Jesus. That Jesus is the ultimate display of God's love. That like Malachi in his opening, he points back to historical events. We as Christians today point back to a historical event to see the love of God toward us. What's that event? The cross. You want to know God loves you? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to know that his word is sure and true? You want to know that he rebuilds you as a believer in Jesus Christ? You look at the cross. You look at places in scripture like Romans 5, 8 that says that God demonstrates his love toward you and toward me. How? In that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know the love of God? Look at Jesus. Look at his life given for you. And so election choosing culminates in Christ, in this biblical expression of God's love for us. God choosing, God calling. Even in this place, God is calling some of you to himself. If you'll listen, if you'll hear his voice today, you see what God, God's choosing does for me. It doesn't make me angsty, right? And listen, I've said on both sides of this coin before. I've said where some of you said, here's what God's election does for me. It calms my soul by humbling me 
by removing boasting, removing entitlement, removing pride, and eradicating self-reliance, all things that I really struggle with. God going, I chose you, not based on anything you bring to the table, because everything you bring to the table is a wreck, and if there's anything good you bring, I've given you. I come empty-handed. I, I think like my heart almost exploded as we're singing these songs and the depth of them if we really get a hold of them. It's your kindness. It's your mercy. Like Israel's story here is our story. Like the one in, in, in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. It's been said three times in the service about the prodigal son. We should probably listen, Okay. This son who looks at his father and essentially says, I wish you were dead. Give me everything I'm owed. That's how we treat God, by the way. Give me what I'm owed. And he takes it and the father gives it to him. And he goes and he does what with it? He squanders it all. You know the story. And he's there with the pigs wallowing around going, listen, the servants at my father's house eat better than I do. Surely I can convince him to make me one of them. And so he works on a speech. And imagine this, like he's probably walking back home, working on that speech. Okay, here's, here's going to be my, my, my sales pitch to my dad. Here's what I'm going to say to him to get him to bring me back, maybe just as, as a servant. And what happens? Before the speech that he has prepared ever is able to roll off of his lips, the Bible says, Luke 15, from a far way off, from a distance, the father sees him. He doesn't just wait there and go, I bet he's got something good to say. He doesn't wait there on the porch with an I told you so. It says that he literally picks up his garments and runs. The patriarch does not run, but ours does. The father doesn't run, but ours does. Why? Verse 2, part A. Because he loves you. Because he's, he loves you. He says, don't start the speech. Don't give me the speech. I love you. I've forgiven you. Here's a, here's a clean robe and a ring. You're my son. You're my daughter. I don't care how far you've gone. I don't need to hear it. He already knows it. But I don't, I don't need to hear it. All I want is you. Coming back home. Listen, that's what confession and repentance is. We're coming back home. Back home to the Father who loves us more than we can ever fathom. A Father who has chosen us and adopted us. Who 1 John 4.19 says, loved us first. Um, I'm going to close with this. Um, because I, I, I think... Several of us are in these moments of wondering about God's love. Christians, sometimes you as a believer. Um, and maybe this is how you feel. I, I read it this week and I thought it would be appropriate. Um, it says, perhaps, as believers today, we know God loves us. We really believe that. But if we were to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father moment by moment, which reveals our actual theology, whatever we say we believe on paper, many of us tend to believe it is a love infected with disappointment. He loves us, 
but it's a flustered love. We see him looking down on us with paternal affection, but slightly raised eyebrows. God in some way is disappointed with you as a son or daughter. God in some way going, you're not really stacked up. That's not our God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the one I just described from Luke 15, who comes running after his children, who loves you and me more than we can ever to sit in this moment for just just a bit. As we think, think about the love of God. Think about Jesus Christ. God, very God, laying down his life. About God's faithfulness and you're my unfaithfulness. About his kindness. Father, how you love us. Oh, how you love us. God, the grace you have given. God, we do not deserve it. God, the image I keep getting of myself is me sitting in in your lap and slapping you in the face. How silly that sounds, but how real that is of how I live my life. A God who has cared for me and saved me, provided, corrected. Oh God, I pray that you would establish us as a community of people, confident and sure of your love, your love toward us Individually, your love toward us corporately. 
a love we are so undeserving of. Yet you freely give it. You allow us to live in it. And Lord, I pray that from that love, you would sweetly and kindly bring us back into alignment. For those who are far off, God, in confession, in repentance, rebuilding our hearts and our lives, rebuilding this church for your glory. God, we don't deserve to sit in the place of a chosen people. But for whatever reason, you see fit to bring us in. And so, Lord, I pray that that would humble us. I pray that that would shape us and make us and mold us more into the image of your son, Jesus. God, may that temper our anxious souls and hearts our pride and our anger and our frustrations, may they melt away by your great love. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you that we can just jump into the deep end of things that you display and put in your word. That there's not a fear of retribution or chaos, but there's a true zeal, a true desire to know you to the fullest extent. God, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you for going forth. Now shape and make us this week more and more into your son for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.